Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for an opportunity to come again into your presence with the promise that you're here to meet us, where we gather in your name. So help each of us elevate your name above all else in our hearts, all other loyalties, all other concerns. And even if we can't get rid of those concerns, just help us to see you're above it, that you're the anchor of our soul, whatever we're going through. You are our vision, whatever we're moving toward. And I pray, Lord, for a, a release of power for love in, in marriages specifically this morning. And in families and the ripple effect that has. We pray for this morning, I just ask for a restoration of hope for, for marriage in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, if you were here last week, you know, you may remember, um, I left you with a little bit of a cliffhanger uh, in Luke and the, uh, the series we're in, in Luke um, 16. And uh, we got to that very difficult and terse statement of Jesus concerning marriage and divorce and adultery. And so uh, this is what we talked about last week, and I had this peculiar um, uh, title here that I didn't really get to explain, so, so it's been bugging me all week. I hope it hasn't been bugging you all week. But I, I want to address what Jesus says about the XX marrieds, which is to say, um, uh, when Jesus refers to uh, people who've been divorced, this is what he says in Luke. He only says one, there's only one verse about marriage in the Gospel of Luke. It's what we read last week. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, obviously, especially for 21st century American ears, this needs a little unpacking. And uh, so that's what we're going to spend our time doing today, essentially, is unpacking these words, this one verse. Um, but we're going to do it by looking at everything Jesus said about marriage. Uh, but you may be surprised to discover there's really only four times Jesus addresses it, addresses marriage, and they all essentially just repeat the same thing. There's some expanding in some text and less in others. But, but every single time he says anything about marriage, it includes this statement. And Luke, the compiler of the history of Jesus as he is, as he introduced himself, it seems like he just distilled down what Jesus wanted to say most. So not the fringe statement, but the essential statement that Jesus wanted to make about, Jesus, uh, about marriage. And, and, and here it is. Uh, so, so this obviously um, seems odd that, that Jesus would make the most essential thing he wanted to say about ma marriage uh, circumstantial. This doesn't seem like the essence of marriage. This seems like in this situation, this is what you do or this is what is going on. Uh, because it's a question about divorce. But did you know this? That the only time... Jesus ever talks about marriage is in the context of divorce. That's it. Every single time he talks about marriage, it is, it is 
either in response to a question about divorce or he insists on speaking to the issue of divorce. And, uh, and at first this really struck me and kind of bothered me, frankly, but then it occurred to me just selfishly as a child of divorce, I'm glad that Jesus addresses marriage in this context. Because for, for parents, ex-spouses, kids alike, everyone who's been through a divorce knows that that's the only context you have for understanding marriage, isn't it? And, and unfortunately, Jesus comes to us, well, fortunately, Jesus comes to us in a fall, fallen world. But unfortunately, the, matter, the, the, the matters that he's going to address as it relates to marriage um, are, are go much deeper than perhaps we're willing to, to confront. And so every time, like I said, he talks about marriage, he talks about an unrecognized form of adultery in the context of divorce. And the key is unrecognized, unrecognized. For example, this is the only other time in Matthew he talks about uh, marriage, and this is actually just, bef- just before he talks about marriage, where he essentially repeats what he said in Luke verbatim. But this is what he says just before that. Notice to what he said. Notice how Jesus comes, and he brings to the surface sins that one we can keep hidden, but two we're not even really recognized in the way he recognizes them when he brings them up. You've heard it said. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. So I won't ask for a show of hands, okay? By these standards, who among us is guilty of adultery? I mean, if we went by these standards, many of us wouldn't have any hands left, would we? <laughs> Including me. I'll, be the, I'll go first, all right? I'm an adulterer by these standards, right? Well, you don't know, but yeah, I'll just tell you I am, okay? <laughs> but, but this actually brings, brings us, I think, to the fundamental principle that we have to move toward this whole subject with an orientation toward, namely this. When it comes to Jesus' plan to fix marriages and to fix the world, it's the little things. The little things are the big things, and the big things are the little things. And this was constantly a cause of frustration from Jesus' opponents and disappointment for his disciples. That he was constantly focusing on Things that seem trivial and trite, the little things, heart issues, right? And, and remember, the people wanted a political ruler to do what political rulers do, fix big stuff like the economy, national security, immigration. And yet Jesus came to, claiming to be the ruler of all rulers, uh, not only saying all the opposite stuff of what the people wanted to hear, about the economy, about, about national security, about immigration, right? Right? Gentiles are welcome in the kingdom. It's an open door policy for Gentiles. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven doesn't look like poverty, Jesus. 
right? And, you know, national security, this temple's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. You're about to be sieged in 70 AD. And all your hopes of what the Messiah was going to do, they're going to be disappointed. That's what he did as the big ruler of rulers. And yet, he would seemingly make mountains out of molehills. Like this text we just read. Making a moral equivalence between adultery and lust. Does that make any sense? And he does the same thing between murder and anger. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if, you've been, if you're angry with a brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. You're already guilty. He, he literally says that you will be liable to the judgment. And name calling, by the way, he says, if you call your brother a fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. And it's the first time he ever mentions hell in the gospel. For what? Have you ever been angry at your brother? Right? Now, this does it not seem a little extreme. And if we're honest, out of touch with reality. The way things really are. But let me ask you this. How many relationships do you know that have been destroyed? Or you can even think of it like this. How many of your relationships have been destroyed because you murdered somebody? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. You're welcome here. Just don't murder us, all right? Okay. Now, now let me ask you, how many of your relationships have been destroyed because of your anger? How many relationships are destroyed because someone loses it and, you know, pulls the trigger? But how many relationships are destroyed because anger leads to resentment and resentment leads to your love growing cold and people going their separate ways and just... Never talking again, the relationship just dies with a whimper. Was Jesus out of touch with reality of what really mattered? Because maybe the little things are the big things. How many marriages do you think are destroyed by adultery each year? Probably quite a few. How many destroyed by lust each year? Right? You see, it's not typically the big things that destroy our marriages or our world. It's the little things over time. It's, it's divorce by a thousand paper cuts. And Jesus, for his part at least, reserved the right to hold a position of the ideal, an uncompromising ideal. As I said last week, the law is uncompromising. Now Jesus turns out to be abundantly merciful despite the fact that the uncompromising law renders us all guilty, uh, which is kind of the whole point of him coming and dying for us. He's trying to show us, you got a problem bigger than you could fix, okay? But, but he still maintains the ideal, because if you start lowering the ideal to accommodate the people living up to it, suddenly their bar is lower, and they're living lower than they necessarily need to be. And, and, and the fact is, marriage can be beautiful and redemptive and wonderful if we allow Jesus to define it for us. And so, so yes, he reserves the right to hold the position that even if you've got the perfect government and power, even if you have the perfect law, you don't have the means of changing the world. If the Old Testament isn't proof of that, I'm not sure what is. 
right? If, if, if the right government ruler and the right law or legislation could actually change the world at its root problem, the heart, then he wouldn't have needed to come in the first place because he already gave us his law. His law is holy and perfect, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 7, but because it's holy and perfect, it just shows us that we're not, <laughs> right? So, so he came to actually make a real difference in this world and, and fix the biggest problems in our, in not only world, but our marriages because, because the biggest problem in all is as small as the human heart, the human heart. And so he calls us to accept bizarre notions like that the world really would be better off, not if we got the right man in power to protect our homes and families, but if all men would go home and take care of their families. Right? If, if women would stay home, not stay home, but women would stay with their husbands and fight for their families. Right? It's, not, it's a two-way street. Not picking on guys, not picking on anyone. I'm just pleading with all of us to get a, a vision of the kingdom of God and his righteousness in our marriage today, okay? And the, because the world would be better off if we, if we got this vision. And, and, and that is the, that is, that's what we need. We don't just need people governing us who are godly or whatever. We, we need God to protect our own wife, our own kids, our own marriages, our own future marriages, our future kids from our own capacity to destroy it all with our lusts and our anger and our bitterness and our judgment and all the rest, all of those things that are actually destroying marriages every day, all day, every day in some cases. And so Jesus' teaching on marriage, it may be out of touch with the way things really are, but that's only because the way things really are has gotten out of touch with reality. Right? As Abraham Heschel says, this world, no mere shadow of an upper sphere, like Plato taught, is real, but it is not absolute. The world's reality is contingent upon compatibility with God. Which is to say, all the stuff that is of God and his kingdom will last when Jesus comes back. Everything else, burnt into flames. is burning up. He's coming as a consuming fire to purify this world, to burn the sin from this race, this human race, and to raise us from the dead. And if there's marriages in heaven, I'm not sure if there are. There's that weird teaching about angels and us being like angels in heaven. But if there is, I can assure you, it's going to look like something that we try to get a vision for today and, and maybe look completely different than what you have in your memory and your experience of what marriage is like. So, okay, that's where we're going. That was too long of an intro. Here's what we're talking about. Marriage on earth as it is in heaven, right? This is the absolute. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to show us this world on earth as it is in heaven. And he demonstrated what that looked like with his very life. He embodied what it looked like to live on earth as you will in heaven one day. You want to know what it'll be like? It'll be like what this character reveals in Jesus Christ. And so this is, uh, this is where we're going. We're going, we're going to talk about marriage, and we're just going to define the terms, all right? We're just defining the terms of marriage. Um, but to do that, you have to also talk about family. And if you do it well, you'll end up throwing in the meaning of life. So we're talking about marriage, family, and the meaning of life, okay? <laughs> okay. 
let's see how far we get. All right, marriage is this. Marriage is a sacrament and a covenant. It's really this simple. If you get a hold of these two ideas, these concepts, these realities, you will understand marriage and hopefully have some scaffolding to, to have a vision for it. So, so it's all captured in, in two lines uh, of, of what Jesus said in Mark 10, Matthew 19 concerning marriage. And he's quoting Genesis 2. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, it's a sacrament. God does the joining. Let no man separate. It's a covenant. In other words, only God can determine what happens after God joins something. And God determines, don't separate it. And so, you can think of a, a sacrament as a spiritual reality. You can think of a covenant as a legal reality. But we're going to unpack these now. But what I want to do is take you to Mark 10. Okay? And you can turn there if you've got your Bibles. And this is the most expanded version of the teaching. So we're just going to hunker down here. And, uh, and we're going to talk about marriage. All right? So read with me uh, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let me just make a little side note and just point out this contrast of a true disciple and whatever this Pharisee represents. Disciples are those who go and sit at Jesus' feet and let him set the agenda of what he has to teach. The Pharisee comes with a loaded question. And it's fine to take your questions to God, but just know that sometimes God has some questions for us. And sometimes he wants to teach us about things that maybe we don't care to hear about. In this case, probably is true for the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. He answered them, what did Moses, who represents the law, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now listen to this, because these words, I think, are so important for how you understand God's law and what God was doing and why some of the laws, when you read them in the Old Testament, they seem like, this doesn't seem like Jesus, in the sense that doesn't seem like the high calling Jesus calls to, of perfect love. But listen to what Jesus says. He said, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment provision. But it was not so from the beginning. Do you hear what that's saying? He's saying that the law was as perfect as you get, especially for the time. But even that was a low standard. Right? There was an accommodation that had to take place for God to have a real expectation to be put on the people. I mean, the law of God was not the highest standard. Don't murder. It's not the highest bar that we're living up to, right? right? And so God created guardrails with the law that would help move us in the direction of love. That was the goal of the law. Love is the goal of the law. As Paul says, all of the commandments can be summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but, but the law was, get, so the reason that's important in this context is he's saying, yes, Moses did allow that. The law does allow that. But do you want to know God's absolute will for marriage? 
You want to know what marriage on earth as it is in heaven looks like? You want to know what marriage under the new, the marriage standard under the new covenant looks like? It looks like this. Verse 6. Here you go. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and... Some translations say hold fast. It's really important that whatever translation they use, whatever word is translated, it's in the passive form. It's not, marriage is not you holding on to each other. Dear God, I hope we can hold on to each other, okay? You are not holding fast to anyone. You're not joining anyone. You are being joined, and God's the joiner, okay? You will be, he will be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what, who is joined together? Not husband and wife. It's what God has joined together. Let no man separate. And then he goes on to say the same thing he said in Luke. Whoever divorces wife marries another commits adultery. And he actually points out here, it's the only place, and if, a, uh, uh, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And it's interesting because under the law, that was not wouldn't have been allowed, but you see Jesus preparing for a mission to the Gentile world, where this is more common. Preparing for marriage in 21st century America, where this is common. 70 and, 70% of divorces are initiated by the wife, I'm told, in, in this country. And that's not to say husbands are innocent. It's just a fact. And so, uh, so here it is. What God has joined together, let no man separate all right? So, marriage is a sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. You can think of a sacrament uh, as an intersection between heaven and earth. It's a, play, it's a designated place or occasion or event where God calls a meeting. It's a divine appointment. Sacraments are divine appointments. The intersection between heaven and earth where God has initiated something so that all who receive the invitation can have a concrete way to respond to him, right? Because we're mortal, limited, finite creatures. God is infinite everywhere, right? And so how do we respond to him? We need concrete ways sometimes. And so he gives us sacraments as a way to exercise our faith in, in embodied ways, uh, and so, and, and the key is we can know God will meet us there because he's the one who initiated it in the first, pr- in, in the first place. So the two that we're most, most commonly think about, two sacraments we most commonly think about in Protestant church is baptism and communion, right? Baptism and communion. Like baptism, baptism is the, the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Remember when he says, go and baptize the nations and I'll be with you to the end of the age. He's saying, go and in this baptism, you keep on track with this mission, I'll be with you. It's a divine appointment. Every baptism, we can presume upon God's presence. You can't always presume upon God's favor and presence on something you're doing. But you can when you're baptizing and being baptized. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my body. Or communion, this is my body, this is my blood. Do it in re- remembrance of me. And in both cases, okay, it's a ceremonial picture, a word picture that, that communicates the gospel. Baptism, you, are, you die with Christ and you're raised to newness of life, right? It's a word picture 
a concrete word picture. The, the bread and the wine or the juice, it's my body given for you, broken for you. It's my blood poured out for the sins of many. But if, if these are symbolic word pictures of God's love, these sacraments, how then could marriage be a sacrament? How could marriage become a symbol of God's love? Well, answer twofold. One is it's a sacrament because God's joining it, period. If God's the one doing it, if he's the one holding together to marriage, there is a spiritual reality there whether we recognize it or not. But remember, sacraments, these sacraments are supposed to be symbolic forms of communication, word pictures, bread, right, baptism. Well, how's marriage like that? Well, it's not. And that's why we need Christ to mediate our marriage, to stand in the center of our marriage and tell us how to make our marriage look like the love of Christ. Because how are you going to actually make this sacrament of marriage embody the, the gospel, embody that love that Christ has? I'll tell you how. Well, Jesus told us how. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, washing her with the water of the word so that he might present her spotless and blameless before himself. He's preparing us to, to walk down the aisle to meet him in the end. And so how do, we, how do we make this word picture alive? We allow Christ to meddle with our marriage. <laughs> right? It, it won't, Christ's love won't flow through us if we don't obey his command to love. But it can. You see, that's what makes marriage so profound. The difference between the sacrament of communion and baptism is that they are only ceremonially symbolic of God's love in Christ. But marriage is incarnationally symbolic of God's love in Christ. In fact, I would say it's incarnationally a vessel of God's love in Christ. Because I can't tell you how much love I've received in the form of grace from my wife, who has become a vessel for the love of Christ, not just her love. I'm, it's not, and it's not even just a reflection. It's that through her grace and through her love and patience with me, I've received God's love. I've grown closer to God because of her love toward me. And that's what marriage is supposed to do. It's what marriage can do, I should say. It's not an ought and should. And it's what it can do. It's how powerful it can be. And so it's up to us, though, to whether we're going to allow Christ to meddle with our marriage whether we're going to allow him to be at the center mediating our marriage by his very presence, but also by obeying his commands. And so, so marriage is that sacramental relationship through which we can both give and receive more than just our love that can actually be a vessel for God's love. But uh, the, the beautiful thing about that is that God it's not just a command. Because again, if Jesus came and just added harder commands to all the commands we proved we couldn't follow, we'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? Right? It's more than just a command to love and marriage. Jesus issues an invitation into a new kind of relationship in your marriage that he himself is a part of. 
Do you know that Jesus is the third wheel in your marriage? He's supposed to be the first wheel, but, right? That Jesus, this is the claim of scripture. I mean, can I just take a time out for a second? And I recognize that when you start talking about like the most fundamental things, people can just tune out. Like if I go to my mechanic and he starts explaining all the things he's going to do to the transmission to fix it, Philip, Phil, uh, I'm going to tune out and think about my shopping list or whatever, right? Because when you start talking about like the most fundamental and essential things, you can think, well, it's kind of detached from how I use it. I just get in and push the pedal and it works, right? But, but you know, this is, I don't know where it's, if I'm driving a Tesla, I need to know some fundamental things when I pull up at the gas pump to fuel up, right? Okay? Sometimes you actually need the fundamentals, right? And they actually are functionally very important. So I hope this isn't too abstract. We're getting down to flesh and blood here. So, All right. Um, but Jesus himself is the mediator of our marriage. You see, if marriage is truly a lifelong sacrament, and it is, according to God, it means that, that, that God is in the middle of it. Like he has a special design and plan for it. And he's always here. He's, yes, he's always here for you, but he's also always here for your marriage. And, and if you're not married, this is relevant for your future or for how you understand your past because we were all raised by married or ex-married folks, weren't we? The, the, the relationship that has formed the world far more than any other relationship on earth is the marriage between husband and wife. Every serial killer was raised by someone who was husband and wife or ex-husband and wife, right? Every dictator, every tyrant, right? We all, it is the most formative relationship for this world. And so, of course, he would promise to meet us there if he has a vested interest in this world. Holding us together and molding us together in marriage. Fighting for our marriage long after we've given up. <laughs> and I saw living proof of this just a few years ago when I remarried my parents after 30 years of divorce. 30 years after my father had given up on marriage, God proved that he never stopped fighting for it. And finally... When my dad surrendered to his will, he, he brought him back in. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, now pay your dues. It, it was grace like marriage is from the first, in the first place. It's grace. But in, in every marriage, we have this unique promise that, that Christ is here. for. He will help your marriage. And, and, but unfortunately, that often just comes in the little ways that we don't want our marriage to be helped, like softening my heart toward my wife sometimes, right? How many people pray, God, please humble me. I feel too proud right now. I feel like I've been, I'm just too self-justifying in this argument, God. How many of you pray? You know, it's just not our inclination, but it's the only way, it's the only help that really fixes matters in the end. You can't change your spouse, but you can ask God to change you. But, and, and so, uh, so what can happen though is it's, you know, these little things accrue, that's, that's when we give up on love. So even if we're not divorcing, we can just live as like, you know, co cohabiting partners in, in the same house, but our love has grown cold. 
So, so that's what we need to understand. Marriage is not just a sacrament, but it's, an all, it's also a covenant, okay? Marriage is, oh, we're already there. Marriage is a covenant. So let me just put it plainly to help those who already are married and those of you who are interested in being married one day. The problem with every marriage comes the day it dawns on you that your spouse or future spouse is a sinner, okay? <laughs> one day you will discover it. You, 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 you will look over, wake up one morning, look over, You'll see your spouse, and, and it'll dawn on you, oh, no, I married a sinner. <laughs> Don't panic, okay? They did too. <clears throat> now, it's not that any of us are particularly sinful. It's just that we're particularly human, and humans are sinners. So the best thing to do right up front is recognize that you're going to be or already are married to a sinner, and it turns out sinners aren't easy to love, Okay? So if your spouse is here, turn to your spouse and say, I married a sinner. I, the only person I heard was my wife, all right? She was enthusiastic about that. <laughs> but in a sinful world, we need covenant, a covenant to hold us together. And this gets to the meat and potatoes of making sense of the divorce ad adultery thing, okay? So marriage is a sacrament and a covenant, a covenant, okay? And a covenant is a legal reality. It's a legal reality that defines the relationship. When uh, Kelly and I were dating in Australia, we got in trouble because we DTR'd. Do you know what that is? Define the relationship. I don't know if they still use that. Yeah, they still do. Okay. Uh, so we were in a missionary training school where you weren't allowed to have boyfriend, girlfriend for six months. Uh, I think they actually changed the rule after our school because like six couples got married from our school. But, uh, but, but we got in trouble. I almost got kicked out of the school because we DTR'd way too early and way too often, whatever that means. Uh, we were hanging out and we had gotten walkie talkies and everything. They almost kicked me out of my YWAM discipleship training school on Christmas day. Can you believe that? But I, I knew who was the one God had spoke to me. You don't know. I, t I do tell people that, uh, that, uh, that that's what gets us through the hard times is proving our DTS leaders wrong. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. But, but the, to understand a covenant, you just need to understand all a covenant is, it's a, it's a binding contract is too small. It's, it's a binding uh, legal understanding that, that defines a relationship between you, another party, whether you plural, you singular, and God. So there's lots of covenants in the Bible because God is interested in defining relationships with his people. So under the Mosaic covenant, it was a covenant of law. And there are certain conditions for that. Under the new covenant, it's a covenant of grace. Their conditions are much narrower. Confess Jesus as Lord. Follow him. Repent, right? So covenants define relationships. And in every case of a covenant, it's not us who finds the relationship. It's God who defines the relationship. In the case of every covenant, it's not us who initiates the relationship. It's God who initiates the relationship. Like I said, marriage is initiated by God, whether we recognize him in it or not. Um, but 
if, if you get married, of course, you are, this gets to the confusion, okay, about divorce and adultery. If you get married, you have to sign a, a contract to satisfy the requirements of the state. But we all know good and well that that contract is as flimsy as the piece of paper that it was written on, right? That's why we have to understand marriage is not a government contract. It is a religious covenant. And yes, it is religious. It's not bound and authorized by the terms and conditions of the state. It's bound and authorized by the terms set by the living God. God joined it. What's the terms? Let no man separate it. Right? And to invoke God in marriage, which you do essentially anytime you get married, whether you recognize it or not, means you are giving up your rights as American citizens to treat your spouse the way you have the right as an American citizen to treat your spouse. Okay? You, because as American citizens, understand, you have the constitutional right to treat your spouse like garbage. You have the constitutional right to, to abandon your spouse, to divorce your spouse, much less your kids, right? Like if, if our highest standard is our rights, then we are paralyzed in indifference. Our, our highest, our standard is simply... What does Jesus call us to? And so much of the confusion about marriage comes from the fact that at some point in our nation's history, oops, at some point in our nation's history, we thought it wise to require a government signature on a religious covenant. Okay? So marriage in America is a government institution, but it's also a religious institution. And that's simply because we decided to start requiring the government to get into our marriages. And so what happens, every t- even I have to do this when I'm officiating a wedding, I have to sign this, begrudgingly sign this government contract, okay? Because that's what's required. And so what happens is, when, they, when people get married, they don't realize they're in a covenant with God, their spouse, and themselves. They just think, well, it's just me, my spouse, and the government, but they're not really mediating the relationship. It's a direct relationship. And that means your resentment can accrue, the offenses can accrue, the records of wrong can accrue, because you don't have anyone standing in the middle saying, hold on, time out, let me speak to this issue, right? In the covenant of marriage, and, and by the way, divorce is always an option over here, right? And, and you can get divorced from this contract. And what Jesus is saying, not this one. Because it's not, it's not about you. It's an institution I created. And I did it for a very specific purpose, which we'll get to. But you see, the, the, the closer you get to the one who holds the covenant together, the closer your marriage gets. God is the mediator. And the more you submit to Christ, you move toward Christ, that's what brings intimacy to move, and as you move toward one another. Because you're moving toward him in your marriage. The greatest gift, as my father-in-law always says, and I've just found it to be so true, the greatest gift you can give to your spouse and to the world is to have a soft heart toward God. And, and that, there's nothing more practical than that. 